Well, as a Christian, there are questions in your life that are just really difficult to answer for a myriad of reasons. There are questions that maybe you have about what God is doing or maybe what people have about what you're doing and why you're not doing certain things or why you are doing other things. Questions that might cause you to strain or to struggle. Or as we try to live out our faith more fully, questions that that might hamper or encourage our intensity towards Christ-likeness. And we desire these things to be strong and stable in our faith. And one of those questions that I think comes to the top of, of at least of our scriptures that teach us and that comes to our attention here is how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? Right? That may have been a question that you have in grade school or even now. Maybe, that, maybe that's a question that you have as you're trying to read through the Bible every single year. You go to those really nitty-gritty parts of the Old Testament and you go, what in the world does this have to do with the New Testament? And another question might be, what role does the law and obedience play in your own Christian walk? What role does the law play in your Christian walk? Now, there are two polar opposite ways to answer these questions. One is called the antinomian way, so antinomian, where law has no role in your life. Christians are free to do whatever they want, and in its simplest form, it rejects the words of the Old Testament and the law where everything that you want to do is okay because God loves you and gives life freely to you. You can come as you are and even stay as you want. An opposite side of this, or another poll to look at this, would be a legalistic way. So one way might be antinomian. The opposite would be a legalistic way, where your salvation, to a degree, depends on whether you conform to the law of God altogether. Your obedience is essential for earning salvation. You see how these two poles play on. One might tug against one another, and the other one tugs against the other, and maybe they all see their way as understanding how the Old Testament fits into our lives. Now, as Christians, we believe in Christ, where God has revealed the truth and the glory of Jesus to us. We believe him to be the Son of God who died for sinners so that all who repent and believe in him are rescued from the judgment of the Lord. But what about now in the things of life? How should we live now in what God has brought before us? Now, in some sense, there's tension in our text where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Before the passage, there were 16 verses where we were told by Jesus as he spoke to his disciples, where he was telling his disciples what followers of him are to be like. For many verses, there were the Beatitudes, and then for three or four more verses, the command to be salt and light to the world, a giving of understanding of, of how we are to live. And now this text believes, or this text begins the, the middle section of what's called the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're new, the chapters 5, 6, and 7 as a whole are called the Sermon on the Mount, whereas the Beatitudes and salt and light are kind of the introduction to the sermon. And now this set of verses is the beginning of the body of the Sermon on the Mount. But there's tension here as people would have been listening to what Jesus was saying. He left out any consideration of the law. And so you'd have to place yourself in the mind of the hearers who would have been living fully in a Jewish backdrop, fully in a Jewish setting where they are wondering, is he ever going to speak to what we have been learning so diligently for all of our lives? And I think here Jesus anticipates their anxiety with an introduction to the rest of the body where he speaks directly to that backdrop that they would have. 
Now, if you are not a Christian here and you think, okay, this is stuff about law and Old Testament, New Testament, I don't care, I would just ask you, do you think that God commands you to live in a certain way? Maybe another way to ask that is, do you think God desires or calls anything out of your actions? Even if you're not a Christian, I think you, you have to answer that question. If you are a Christian, you also have to answer that question. Does God want anything out of us? Now, I want to present and answer this issue from this text from a couple of different questions. You have them stated in your outline. How is the law related to Jesus first? Or why does Jesus bring this up second? Or third, how should Christians respond to the law, which Jesus gives us instruction with? And then fourth and finally, what are the Lord's requirements for heaven? So first, I think this text tells us exactly where that tension lives in. How is the law related to Jesus? Or how are Jesus and the law related to one another? Now the question here is answered in verse 17. Look at that with your eyes. Jesus anticipates the concern of their own setting by showing the concern that they might have of him by setting aside and disregarding the law. He's anticipating that they will accuse him as disregarding the law or putting it off to the side or maybe even as a blasphemer would say that there is no law. So Jesus answers their concern in verse 17. How is Jesus related to the law is given the answer here. Well, don't think that he's come to abolish it is what he says. Now the word abolish here is a picture of of what you might do to a camp or to a tent at a campground. You you take it apart, be piece by piece. Or maybe for some of you watching some of the political baits that go down, you get really fired up when your candidate takes apart line by line an argument of the other candidate, right? You are watching them demolish or abolish the statements of the other candidate. Now, what Jesus is saying is he didn't come in order to take apart the law. So don't think wrongly about what Jesus thinks about the law is what he's saying here. So how does the law relate to Jesus? He uses here a rich word, and it has multiple meanings, the word fulfill. It's it's a crucial word to understand. Now, I think Matthew, it's clearly stated in Matthew, the the unique use of the word fulfill. The the use of the word fulfill in Matthew's text is to show the true meaning, the true intent, and the true eschatological consummation of what God did in the past is now coming to fruition in the person of Jesus. All that God has said he will do is coming to fulfillment in Jesus. And that's what I think is in chapters one and two of the book of Matthew. All of these stories that explain Jesus's birth narrative or all of these characters of this long form genealogy that's present in the first chapter, these are inklings of fulfillments that only the person of Jesus can fulfill. In the sense that Jesus is the ultimate consummation of all that God has done from the book of Genesis on into the point where he came. Now, Jesus here is saying that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the commands of the law or the the law itself. Now, there are three ways, I think, clearly that Jesus comes to fulfill the law. So still on point number one of the outline, but three ways that Jesus fulfills the law. The first one is Jesus is a teacher which is what the law demands. Jesus is a teacher of which the law demands. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, these are prophetic texts saying that when the Messiah comes, he will not only come, but he will explain. 
he'll exposit the meaning of the law more clearly and more full. Now, he does this uniquely and not just teaching, but we'll get into one of those other points later. But what you need to know is Jesus, in part, fulfills the law by being a teacher of the law. And whenever he taught the law, it says in our scriptures that they marveled at what he said. And they marveled at how he said it. The, the audacity of which he was saying the things that he was saying was pointing right at them as someone who was not just a good teacher, but a fulfiller of the desire of all of the law. Second, so he comes and fulfills as a teacher. Second, he fulfills by completing the law's requirements. He comes and fulfills the law by completing the law's requirements. By that, I mean he obeys the law to the full. He lives a life that you and I were required to live but couldn't because of our sinful nature. He was in himself perfect and holy and righteous, not only because that was his nature, but also in fulfillment of the very law itself. We naturally and easily, you and I, rebel against God's law or what we call sin, where we disembark from God's truth or maybe hide in the shadows from his grace. But here, Jesus, living fully in the light, is perfect in all that he does, and he is perfect in all of life in order to fulfill the law. He is completely sinless, especially when it pertains to the law. So he's not only a good guy, but he's also perfect in how he fulfills the law by obeying it completely. He identifies with us in human form, but he does that uniquely, unlike any of us, by doing it without sin. So in fulfilling, by completing the law's requirements, Jesus also satisfies the requirements of the law by by taking on or absorbing the penalties of the law. So, So catch this, he is not only fulfilling the law and by obeying the law, but he's filling the law in obeying the law by taking on the ramifications of what sinning against the law does. He absorbs the penalty of what the law necessarily needs to give out on sin. So when he's on Calvary's cross, dying that death that we celebrate every Good Friday, something more is happening than a good man dying. Something more is happening, Jesus dying on the cross, than just absorbing what you and I deserve, but rather he is absorbing the very wrath that you and I were supposed to bring on ourselves. Far more spectacular than a sinless man being crushed, more deeply is he bearing the weight, the penalty of wrath that the law and the prophets demanded from the one who would come. So on the cross, Jesus satisfies the wrath of God against sin, and he does this in love. He does this in joy. He does this even in anguish, but he also does this in obedience in substitutional fulfillment. All of the Father's wrath was poured out on Jesus because he came to fulfill the law, completing its requirements. A sacrifice must be paid, and it was given out through his life. Thirdly, another way that he fulfills the law is that the law and the prophets point to him. So he does this by being a teacher. He does this by satisfying all the requirements of the law, but also he fulfills the law and that the law and the prophets all actually are talking about him. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. It's why we can't discount it. It's a, it's a picture beforehand of the one who will come. I am he, is what Jesus is saying. All the longings of the prophets that were speaking about the Messiah that would come, they're talking about me. All of the ones who were perfectly desired from the holiness of God to, to live a certain way, 
I'm the one who's living that certain way. That's what Matthew has been telling us all along, that the law and the prophets are leading up to Jesus. Now, when you see the, the phrase, the law and the prophets, you might wonder, what in the world do the law and prophets refer to? What does that mean? Well, whenever you see the law and the prophets, what that means, in short, is the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. He was referring to its entirety. That phrase, the law of the prophets, would absorb in all of its teaching the prophets, the history, the wisdom literature, and the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. Jesus is saying, everything that's been written and inspired by God, I have come to fulfill it. Now, you've got to remember the people that would be hearing this. They might have been marveling at him because he was a good teacher. They might have been marveling at him because he does incredible things. But keep in mind, they would definitely be marveling at him because of the strength that he would say that everything that God has given to you as God's people is actually culminating in itself a biography of me. What Jesus is saying is that all of the Old Testament is his own autobiography. The, the dots and the iotas breathed out by God himself are referring to me. And even there in the case where it says, I have come there in verse 17 indicates that he is coming for a purpose. He's not just coming to be an example, as some religions say. He's not just coming to be a good friend, as some religions say. He's not even coming just to be a good friend or a helper in times of need, but rather he is coming on a mission with the purpose of fulfilling God's law for God's people. Now, the question that we have to ask just within this first point is, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this tremendous prophetic word from Jesus' own mouth. I think C.S. Lewis has a brilliant understanding of categorizing how we are to react towards God's own speech through the person of Jesus by either seeing him as a liar, maybe he knows what's going on, but he still wants to lie to his people more like a trickster or a carnival trick man, or maybe he's a lunatic. Maybe he has no idea what he's talking about, but he's just a guy who wanted a bunch of friends and he would start and establish something else. And if he could just trick them into doing something, then, then maybe he's acting like a maniac or a lunatic or rather what C.S. Lewis would say, maybe we have to just react and go, he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. Well, he must be the Lord. And this is what Christians for 2,000 years have been responding to this truth with, that that with the understanding that we could pinpoint if he was lying or not. We could understand conceptually if he was a maniac or not. But we must, friend, you must respond to Jesus with this bold claim as the Lord. Now, a lot of the ways we could see the law are through different images that we have in our lives. How do the Old Testament and Jesus relate? Well, in some ways, you need to make sure that you place the Old Testament under the power or the glory of the Lord himself. They don't relate to each other like two cars on a road might share the road, but rather the law is actually under Jesus because it's from him. But there are other ways of which you can look at the Old Testament leading up to Christ. I think the most clear is just that the Old Testament, throughout all of its words and all of its inferences and all of its phrases, actually anticipate, desire, need Jesus coming, dying on a cross, being raised, and giving new life to his followers. Everything in there, you can go page after page after page and ask yourself the hermeneutical question or how to study the Bible with a question, how does this point me to the death and the resurrection of Jesus? It totally changes the way you read the Old Testament. How does Joseph look in relation 
to the death and resurrection of Jesus? How does Noah in the flood reflect the death and the resurrection of Jesus? How does Moses being carried through the sea and placed on the other side and given the law in the relation of the death and the resurrection of Jesus? So how does the law and Jesus interact with each other? Well, Jesus says he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. But secondly, why does Jesus even bring this up? Why is it necessary for Jesus to fulfill the law? One of the things I hope that you see that I just went into a little bit is that there's this continuity or this linear connection between the Old and the New Testament. All right, one of the, one of the downfalls of just our modern printing of the Bible is you grow up knowing there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Well, what if you just grew up knowing there's a scripture, 66 books of the Bible, where the things before Jesus came are pointing to him and longing for him, and the things that are written about Jesus after he came are relying back or falling back on the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's something that we can come to with every point in trying to dissect and know and learn any part of the Bible. How does this direct my aim to the person, death, and resurrection of Jesus? In part, he is explaining what he is doing to bring our attention to what he will do. We know from church history and even today where people actually tear apart the Old Testament from the New Testament. In my utter shame, I wanted to get one of my childhood Bibles bound in just the New Testament. And so I took it to a a bookmaker or a bookbinder, ABC Bookbinding in Oklahoma City, and I said, can you just specially bind in really good leather? Because of course I bought the cheap one because I'm a kid, right? It's $20. But can you, now that I'm an adult, I'm super rich, right? So can you bind this in perfect leather? And the, the book guy does Bibles all the time. He goes, great, what do you want me to do with the Old Testament? And I said, I don't know, you can, you can keep it or do whatever. And he goes, I would, it was so incredible, he goes, I would never do whatever with the Old Testament. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I am convicted right there. I said, well, I'll take it. I, I'm in, I'll take it, right? The Old Testament is necessary to understanding who Jesus is. It's, it's like a shadow to a person. It's like a street that leads up to a house. How do you get to God's glory without understanding of who he is in all of his glory? When he says, the law and the prophets, that's my story. So that's why he's bringing it up. Now look at verse 18. Here Jesus says that the word is authoritative. The word is his. Now, some of your copies of the Bible omit the word for. Uh, But the first word of this verse is for, which connects the the proposition to the previous proposition because, or for this reason, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I want you to underline that verse because this may be one of the strongest statements in Scripture in favor of the full inspiration of the Word of God. The Word of God is without error and has absolute authority over everything in our lives. Jesus identifies the word, meaning the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, and he is identifying the word as God-breathed, not just in thought or emotion, or not just like you can find the perfection of Scripture within uh, within the whole of Scripture, like you can find the greatest quarterback on a certain team, but rather every iota, Every dot, iota meaning the the smallest word in the alphabet or even a dot that can change an entire inflection or meaning of a verse, all of it, he is saying, 
is of God. Another thing that you see in verse 18, what does Jesus say? For truly, I say to you, or truly, I tell you. Not only is God's word authoritative and truth because it's God's word, but here and now it receives an authoritative endorsement of Jesus himself. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. He, he grounds his authority in his nature in himself. He's the only person that teaches that way. You know, like every church you might go to, you say amen at the end of a song or of a prayer or of a sermon. But here, Jesus is saying, I say, or truly, truly, or verily, or amen. The Old Testament prophets would start out their words from the Lord with, thus saith the Lord. Or in the New Testament, the apostles would say, it is written. But Jesus begins his instruction with, truly, I tell you, and then goes on. Now, some people have the impression that the Bible merely contains the Word of God. But remember, the first thing that Jesus says here is do not think. The problem with law has nothing to do with the law. The problem with God's Word is how you and I misunderstand God's Word. It is perfect. It is good. It is from Him. It is breathed out, inspired by God Himself. He didn't come to destroy, but fulfill, and he'll do it until the earth, until heaven and earth pass away. Or in other words, the word's word is more permanent than the world's word. To truly be a follower of Jesus means that you hold God's word down to the iotas as 100% inerrant, meaning without error, or infallible, meaning that if you follow it, you will not fall. So friend, a question here, number two. Do you approach God's word like this? Do you approach God's word like Jesus talked about God's word? Do you you see it when it's read like this? Do you approach it maybe in your quiet time at home like this? Or maybe is it just another tool in your tool belt for you to have a good day? Do you understand why when we read publicly the word of God in this church, why we stand out of reverence and awe for When we are saying these words, we understand them to be God speaking truth to us. When we have a prayer for illumination right before the sermon, it's because we are going to God asking and begging Him to show Himself, and we preach from the Word, not from anything else. One other point, this is key to how we read the Old Testament. The law points to Jesus to understand the Sabbath. We do it in light of Jesus. To understand dietary and sacrificial rules, we do this in light of Jesus. Moses and the Israelites being delivered through the sea, we read this in light of Jesus. Jonah being hidden in a fish for three days, when you read that through the lens and the understanding of who Jesus is, it changes the effect of how you can worship completely. Maybe a meaningless genealogy at the beginning of a gospel. Friend, in light of Jesus, the glory of Christ is like a gold brick path to the Messiah through these words. Why did Jesus come to explain the law in this way? Friend, make no mistake, it was to worship him. Not to puff up in mind, not to live out a different craft or a more noble craft, but to just fall down and worship who he is. If you read the Old Testament as an end in itself, a separate unit apart from Christ, rather than revealing him, leading to him, anticipating him, you will slowly but surely become a legalist and misunderstand the greatness of Christ. 
or you will become an antinomian and actually have nothing to do with Christ altogether. So third, how should Christians respond to the law? How are Christians to respond to the law? We know that Jesus came not to disregard it or put it off, but to fulfill it. He does this so that we can understand that all of the law is talking about him. All of the scriptures show itself in the fruition and the consummation of who he is. But how are we now to live? Jesus comes as the law giver. He is not related to the law, but the law is related to him. Look at verse 19. He defines the relationships of his disciples and how they ought to live. It says, therefore, whoever breaks or relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. His people should practice and teach his commands. That's what we are to do with the law. Practice and explain or practice and teach. There's a negative and a positive here. Negative. A person will relax the commands and lead others to do the same. Or positive. A person follows and encourages others to follow the commands, and is called great. Our status in the kingdom is determined in part for how we see the law ourselves and how we explain the law to others. Our status in the kingdom is determined by, in part, how we see the law ourselves and explain the law to others. Jesus' problem with people here was their relaxing of the law or dampening it down to mean something that it didn't mean. They knew the law, these people who would have been on the peripherals of this audience, but they were using it to put a weight on the backs of people for their own potential power or their exercise of power. They knew all the jots and tittles of the law, yet they were using the law for their own glory and their own good, which is why Jesus uses the next several paragraphs in order to demonstrate to them how they are misreading the law. Verses 21 through 48 of this chapter is a series after series of Jesus showing them their misuse. They were misusing the commands. Like look at verse 43. God says to love your neighbor. Well, that's easy to do, isn't it? They'd restrict that, not by just loving their enemies, but they would restrict the law to where they could hate their enemies. Well, who are the enemies of Jesus, he would say? And who are the neighbors of Jesus? And see how they did that. They they thought it was easy to love their neighbors. Who isn't nice to their next door neighbor? You see him mowing the yard and you just naturally go, hey, I don't even know you. But is it also easy to hate your enemy? Or is it really following Jesus to love your enemy instead? Or take what they did with the permissions that were given with, the, with divorce. Look at verse 31. Going beyond the bounds of what God had set before them. God permits divorce here and in other cases in the gospel, in the case of sexual immorality or in adultery. And yet, the time, by the time that Jesus comes along, the scribes and Pharisees had extended the excuse of divorce to any cause or what today we call no-fault divorce. They were allowing the bounds of the law to either be constricted or expanded to where they could use power by either wanting to be loved or wanting to hate. Interesting, us like them, when it comes to love, we, we find it easy to restrict who we love. And when it comes to hate, we find it easy to relax the commands of God. You know, it becomes easy to hate every other football team on Saturday morning, right, except for your own. 
And it becomes really easy to just love a certain number of people in your life. I've got my two good friends. I don't need any of the rest of you. But what does God, God's love call us to do? A call today is to do as I say, because God loves me, and I've figured it out. My code must be your code. How I parent, or what I wear, or what I do with my free time. I know that God loves me because of me, and so you have to do everything just like me. That's called legalism. Or another call today is do whatever you like. God loves you no matter what. Nothing matters to him. He, he gave you some principles, but what really matters is that God loves everyone doing everything anytime they want. As long as you're happy, love is love. Well, this is called antinomianism or legal liberalism. In verse 19, it tells us that Christ says that there are two things necessary for God's people, practicing his law or practicing his word. Where it's simple, we need to grab onto the commands of Christ like you're steering a wheel and practice it. Not because we think we are saved by it, but out of our love for Christ, recognizing what he did. First John 5 says, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. But recognize that that is done after God loves man. One of the things that has just been helpful for me to understand is just the regular rhythms and patterns of Scripture and the narrative as they unfold. What did God do with the people of Israel and carrying them away from Egypt? By just pure grace and mercy, nothing that they did for themselves, he picked them up and he moved them to the other side of the sea and then gave them the law. What did God do for Noah? Put him into a ship and placed him in a sense of peace and told him to obey certain things? What did God do for us today? Nothing on our own, Mark. He didn't look down the tunnel of time and see, man, they're going to choose great things. I'm going to name them as my own. But rather, he took us from the pit of despair or took us from a place of darkness or took us from when we were dead to our sins, not drowning, but dead to our sins and placed us and gave us the righteousness of Christ. And here we are called to see God's word. And as Christians, we go, absolutely. God's word is a lamp into my feet and a light to my path. God's word is sweeter than honey to me. God's word is what I've been longing for, directions on how to worship God completely and with great joy. And so we love him and keep his commandments. God's people love him because they love him. And they serve him because they love him, because he loved us. And then secondly, we must teach others to do the same. We must be disciples and disciple makers. It's then we are called great. So a question with this, what, what's the estimation of heaven towards you? It's a good sign if you are holding on to the commands of Christ and teaching others to do the same way. It's not a great picture if you are hearing but not receiving the words of Christ and actually by your own actions are leading others astray. It depends on if you practice and help others to practice God's word. So, just to summarize the question, how should Christians respond to the law? We should love the law. And by our own love, others might follow the same. So with this, the fourth and final question, what are the Lord's requirements for heaven? Jesus addresses this in verse 20. What are the Lord's requirements for heaven? How do we get in? Many, many of you might have struggled with this question time and time again in life, or maybe you're not a Christian here, and you do struggle with this. Maybe you want to figure out a way of which we can be in right standing with God or a way to find our certain place in heaven. What are the requirements of heaven? 
after these three verses, it seems like a daunting task. And it is, but in a unique way that might blow your mind. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you need to know that this is a wow statement intentionally because the scribes and Pharisees were really good at knowing the law. They knew the law. They could tell you how many laws there were. They could tell you all the positive laws and all the negative laws. They could tell you how they could be carried out throughout time. They'd even tell you to live a certain way to where if you go to jumbo food and buy spices, you're to give 10% of that spice to God. They were good at seeing the law as something that they could achieve heaven by. But Jesus is saying, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. Now, I would imagine hearing this, hearing Jesus say this from his word, your shoulders might drop or your head might hook over. How in the world do you obtain a righteousness that is beyond the Pharisees and scribes? These are people who went to school to know the law completely. But here's what we have to do. We must not misread what Jesus has said. We must understand what is going on here simply. The law and the prophets point to Jesus and Jesus fulfills them. Until all is accomplished, heaven and earth, all that is accomplished, nothing about the law will be lowered. Nothing will pass away until all is accomplished. And therefore, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven won't relax the law or go beyond the law because in verse 20, to go into the kingdom, you need a righteousness that goes beyond the attempts of the scribes and Pharisees. Remember the Beatitudes. Look over to verse 6 of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. He's speaking of a righteousness that is categorically different than the righteousness that comes from our own self-effort. If you look at the scribes and Pharisees, and what is told to you is that you need a righteousness that is better than theirs, and if you remind yourself of what has been happening for verses and verses before this, you will remember that the one who came or the one who was delivered is perfect righteousness on behalf of sinners. He is speaking of a righteousness that is categorically different than the righteousness that comes from self-effort, meaning that there is a foreign righteousness that imputes itself into our lives. He's talking about the righteousness that only comes from God, that comes from beyond the law, the one that's over the law. We see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So how do you get into heaven? This is the good news. If you've ever been burdened by the fact that you've been disobedient toward the law, that you've ever broken the commands of God, that you've ever seen yourself as small in compared to God's grand glory. You've sinned against God and you recognize that you have and everyone else has around you. So there's no savior in you and no savior in anyone around you. And none of us are declared good or righteousness based on our keeping of the law itself But the condemnation that you feel because of your sin is a good condemnation because hopefully that causes you to no longer look inward or not even an ability to work 
look beyond yourself, but rather to look up to the one who is over the law altogether, the righteousness that has been supplied, the glory that has come to fulfill. You're supposed to feel the weight of sin because you are supposed to receive the good news of Christ. The righteousness comes by the gospel. That righteousness that we need comes by the gospel, not by the law or the works of the law, but by the good news that Jesus Christ has died for our sins and his his life is a perfect substitute on the cross. He deliberately and purposefully satisfies the wrath of God by bearing the weight of judgment for his own so that they can be supplied or given or into science, forensically imputed with God's righteousness. So that when God looks at man, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at Christ, he sees his own glory and his own righteousness. Christ's death in fulfilling the law satisfies the wrath of God against sin for sinners so that those who come to him in repentance from their sin to him can be assured by faith that he died for their sin. The righteousness are righteous because the righteousness of Christ has mercifully been given to them. That's what grace is to the sinner, realizing that nothing in us can save us. And yet Jesus says you must have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. But also, guess what? You can't obtain it. It must be given to you by faith and repentance. And by faith and repentance, God is clear in his scriptures that if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you can be assured that the righteousness of Christ has been applied to you, where his redemption is applied as it's understood according to his word. If you want to be free from your guilt, free from the burden of your sin, friend, the Bible is clear, believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. By this you will enter the kingdom of heaven, by the works of Christ, not of you. By the works of Christ, not of your law-keeping or law-breaking. Because it was Christ on the cross at Calvary where we are reminded where the end of the law is for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you're not a Christian here this morning, our prayer and hope, and not only knowing you and meeting you and being around you and wanting to live life with you, is that you accept the righteousness of Christ is that you recognize that there is nothing in you that can save you and none of us can help with it, but only the righteousness that is supplied and given by Christ himself. And you can know it and obtain it and understand it because he was the one who came to fulfill the law and came to fulfill that all the law that demands so that when God looks at you, he no longer sees you in condemnation, but looks at you and sees one of his own. And if you are a Christian this morning, I hope that you read these passages and these verses and that it causes you to worship with more passion, with more internal zeal in your heart because of the freedom that you have been given in Christ. So how do Christians relate to the law? Well, we honor it. Not for our own sake, but because of where it points to Christ Jesus. We keep the law not because we want to earn righteousness, but because God has sent his spirit to write his law on our hearts so that we love the law. We aim for holiness because we know that in the sanctifying work of God, we are made more in the likeness of Christ who is pure and glorious in all that he is. And we do all of this by faith in Jesus. 
We follow Him as our Lord. We long to know Him more deeply, to serve Him more passionately, and one day to see Him fully. And when we do, we recognize that He will look out on us and say, you are great in the kingdom of heaven. Well done, my good and faithful servant. May we be called great because of his great righteousness and the great law that he fulfilled with his life. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in eagerness and wanting to praise you this morning. We come to you in loving expectation, knowing that by focusing on you, you bring us great joy. By longing for your glory, you bring us great peace. By aiming for your will, we are placing ourselves in your good hands. And so, Lord, we call for your will to be done. We pray for your word to go into our hearts to where we understand and know the commands of Scripture. And may we be used also to build others up in the same faith. Lord, you have given us a great faith. You have given us absolute truth through the person of your Son. And may we respond with lives of great joy because of it. We pray this in the name and in the power of your Son, Jesus.